It's good to be here again. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. I'm part of King's Church just up the road. Uh, we've been having an exciting conference over the weekend, which has been absolutely amazing. And uh, But I'm just delighted to be here with you this morning. I've taken my watch off. <laughs> you know the significance of a preacher taking his watch off? Absolutely none. <laughs> but I can see it there better than the clock at night, so... God has established his king on Zion's hill. That's what the word says, and we've been celebrating that king this morning. He's with us, he's amongst us, he's here to do business with us. I trust that your heart is that you would like to do business with him as well. That we go from here, changed, renewed, stirred, refreshed, encouraged, built up, challenged, provoked. Whatever it is that the Lord wants to do with us, uh, I pray that our hearts will be open and we'll be responsive to him this morning. Many years ago... Thousands of years ago, a man stood in a land that he did not know and had a conversation with God. And that conversation is recorded in Genesis 15. And God said, I'm going to give you all this land. From the Nile to the Euphrates, it's all yours and your descendants. Every single bit of it, every square foot. And there was a sacrifice and animals were killed, and blood was shed, and God said, I make a covenant with you today. Sealed with sacrifice, sealed in blood, I make a sacrifice with you, to, I make a covenant with you today, that I will give you all this land. Hundreds of years later, Abraham's descendants stood in what we call the promised land. And if they wanted to know whether God's word was true, whether they wanted to know, if they wanted to know that God was faithful to his promises, that God is a covenant-keeping God, all they had to do was look down at their feet. Because they stood on the land that God promised Abraham. And they knew at that moment that God keeps his covenant, that God keeps his promises, that he honours what he commits himself to do. 2,000 years ago, God took a cross, an ugly, despicable, horrible means of death, and he hung on a cross that which was most precious to him, that which was most beloved of him, his only son, his sinless son, the only perfect man that ever lived, and he nailed him to a, caused him to be nailed to a cross, and blood was shed, and a sacrifice was made, and God said, I make a covenant with fallen humanity. I make a covenant through the shedding of blood and through the sacrifice of my son. And that covenant is that they will be forgiven. There is mercy and grace for every man and woman and young person fallen from my grace, fallen from my presence. And I make that covenant now and I seal it in blood. So, the covenant was made. But what does our covenant look like? Because we live under a covenant this morning. Turn to Jeremiah, would you please? The book of Jeremiah, you might think that's a strange place to start for looking at the covenant that God has made. But Jeremiah 31 reveals God's covenant. And we're starting at verse... 30, sorry, 33. 
covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Here is the evidence for our covenant-making God. This is the covenant that we live under. Four sections to this. I'm going to move quite quickly through this. Uh, as I've been thinking about this and praying over it, God has brought more and more things to my understanding. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to have time this morning to open up all of those things, but I will drop them out to you, hoping that in the uh, coming days, the Holy Spirit will just refresh you in those things and will excite you about those things. But I want to try and give you the broad sweep this morning of God's covenant with us. The Israelites only had to feel the ground beneath their feet to have the evidence that God had kept his covenant. For us, it is a different covenant. It is a covenant that he has created through his son Jesus. Once the Israelites knew nothing about the land of Canaan, once they were, they were imprisoned and kept as slaves in Egypt, but God brought them out with a great redemptive act and brought them to the place where he promised them they would always be. There has been a time in our lives when we knew nothing about the power of the word of God. But God says here in his word, this is the covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is part of the covenant that God has made with us. This is his word. It is perfect. It is inerrant. And it is for us to read, believe, act upon, accept, and put into practice. Once upon a time, we were ignorant of its treasure, of the life that's contained herein, of the wisdom and the revelation that there is in this book. But now we live under the covenant, and we know that what he has done, what he has said, he has done. Because his word is written in our hearts, is it not? You have the word written in your heart, then God is true, is he not? God is a covenant-keeping God. He has written his word on our heart. We've not just read it, but it's embedded in here. Now, we don't remember it all. We don't know it all. We don't understand it all. But God has planted his word in our heart that we might live by that word. We might live in its authority and its power that we might find uh, all that we need every day from his word. So let's come often to the word of God. Let's not just be satisfied with looking at our daily reading. Let's come again and again to this precious book. Let's come humbly. Let's come before this book, yielding up our lives and saying, God, I need to learn. There are those uh, who uh, come to the book to criticize it. Uh, and there's textual criticism and all those sorts of issues uh, around looking at, the, the, looking at the Word of God. Let us come to the Word and let the Word of God criticize us. Let it change us. Let it shape us. Come hungry to the Word of God. Come with a desire in your heart to be fed, to be stirred, to be encouraged. Come praying. Come, come and say, Holy Spirit, open up this book. You wrote it. Help me to understand what it's saying. Help me to apply what it means here this day. Come in every condition. Come in every circumstance. Come in your highs. Come in your lows. Come when life is sweet. Come when sorrow prevails. But come, because it is true today as it was when Peter declared, you have the words of eternal life. Just as true today. In here are the words of eternal life. And we have strength 
if we're weary. There's courage for the battle. There's food for the soul. Our perspective will change. Our spirits will soar. And we will not be the same if we come diligently, passionately, hungry, and praying to this, this, this book, this Word of God. Because it is His Word. Two people were making a journey on a road, what we call the road to Emmaus. They were downcast, they were despairing. They had been there when Jesus was crucified on the cross. They were walking along, they were just talking about the things that had happened. They were, they were desperate, they were despairing. Things had not worked out as they hoped they would be. And Jesus came to them. We know the story. If you don't read it in Luke 24, it will show you uh, what happened on that particular journey. But their lives were about to be changed. But let's look at the condition they were in. You can read this, uh, say, in Luke 24. Three things they confessed as they walked along this road to Emmaus. When Jesus came to them and said, what are you talking about? What is it you're discussing? And they said, well, haven't you heard? Don't you know? And he said, well, what is it I'm supposed to know? And they said about Jesus of Nazareth. And they started to explain about Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, he was a prophet. Their God was too little. We had hoped he would redeem Israel. Their God was too limited. And it's now the third day. Their God was too late. Their God was too small. This was the God they'd hoped would redeem Israel. But God said, I have come to save the world. He had promised on the third day he would rise again. And he did. But they had had their, blind, their, their eyes blinded and obscured by their disappointment. They did not recognize the presence of Jesus. Because in their eyes, he was too small, he was too little, he was too limited, and he was too late. It had all stopped at the cross. But we know this morning, don't we? But that is not true. And he was about to open up their understanding. He was about to bring revelation to them. He was about to excite them in a way that they could not have imagined. They said to him, it's the third day. How can anything happen now? It's the third day. It's too late. I want to talk to you. I want to say to you about the third day. It is still the third day. If God has spoken a promise into your heart. If God has called you and commissioned you and you have yet to see it happen, if he has promised you through the prophetic, it is still the third day. And if they'd only added that into their vocabulary, they'd have been walking in faith, they'd have been walking in expectation, they'd have been walking in anticipation that they would see Jesus again, because if on the third day I will rise again. There's a story told in this book by James Hudson Taylor about his lifestyle. Sorry, about his life, not his lifestyle, although that revealed it in the book. He was walking through China, accompanied by Miss Elizabeth Wilson, who had by this time been in China about a year. Though scarcely beyond middle age and full of energy, her silvery hair brought her the advantage of being considered old among a people with whom such an appellation was an honour. And her coming to China at all was rather a wonder to other foreigners. But Taylor knew the whole story. He had met her long before as a girl on a visit to London and had learned of her earnest desire to give her life to missionary work. 
But at that time, she was needed in her Westmoreland home, and when her parents became invalids, the cherished hope had to be hidden in her heart. Years went on, as Taylor said in speaking of her, and this loving daughter never let her parents suspect that she was making any sacrifice on the one hand, yet never recalled the gift she had given to the Lord for missionary service on the other. 10, 20, 30 years passed away ere the Lord set her free. But the vow of 20 was as fresh in her heart at 50 as when first she had offered. Within three weeks of the death of her surviving parent, she wrote to our headquarters in London of her desire to spend the remainder of her days in missionary work in China. It was still the third day for us. And it is still the third day for us. God has spoken. God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his word. He keeps his promise. And this morning, if you have been promised things by God, reinforce that by the Holy Spirit coming upon you to encourage you. Take hold of that word again. Be refreshed in it. Be strengthened in it. Go back to God with it and say, Lord, you have said, I'm looking to you and to you alone. 30 years Elizabeth Wilson waited to fulfill the calling of God upon her life. 30 years of serving in different areas. But God said, it is not too late. It is not too late. And these disciples, as they walked along, it's not yet the end of the third day. And Jesus said, here I am. Don't give up on any word that God has ever spoken over you. Wait for him to fulfill it. Be encouraged. Do you have, a, do you have things in your heart that God has spoken? How many of you things in your heart that you've not yet to see that God has spoken over you? Keep trusting. It is still the third day. It has not passed. Let me tell you how you'll know whether it's the third day is finished or not. Are you dead yet? <laughs> Have you heard God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? You haven't? Well, you haven't arrived in heaven. Is that true? So it's still the third day. Are you able to pray out of your heart this morning as Simeon prayed when he held Jesus and knew that the culmination of his life had come because he'd now seen the Messiah and he held him and he said, Lord, let me now depart in peace. Is that your prayer? Are you ready to say, Lord, I'm ready to come to you? I want to depart in peace? Then it's still the third day. It is still the third day. God's promises are still true. He has not abandoned his promises. He has not abandoned his covenant. He is a faithful God. He will keep his word. And however long it seems to be coming, it is still the third day. Amen. It is still the third day. If you feel like saying amen at any point, I'm very happy to hear that. Please let me know you're still awake. We were preaching at a... I was speaking at a, a residential home for the elderly recently, and about half the people had their eyes closed, which is very encouraging for a preacher. But bless them, they are all elderly people and suffering from all sorts of things uh, that help them concentration levels not to be what they should be. This book is about him. This book, from start to finish, is about Jesus. And Jesus came alongside his disciples and he said to them, this is what it says about me in the book. They didn't know it was him yet, but he said, didn't the Christ have to suffer? all these things, and he took them through the word. It says he, he opened up the scriptures to them. Now what scriptures did he have to refer to? He didn't have the letters of Paul. They haven't been written yet. Or Peter, or the book of Revelation. Nobody written the gospel. Nobody sat down and thought, better pen this man's life. It's been such an incredible experience. He was referring to the Old Testament. 
He revealed himself through the books of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, the Psalms, the Prophets. He showed them where it was said in the Old Testament, this is what God is going to do. This is the covenant I have made. I'm going to come, I'm going to give myself, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. Death will be defeated, sin will be defeated, and you'll be able to live for the glory of God forever. The Old Testament. Let's not refuse to read the books of the Old Testament, because we feel we can't find Jesus in them. He is there, because he took these disciples through that book, through the, through the books of the Old Testament. And he changed their lives. Absolutely changed them right the way around. It says that there, when Jesus then appeared to them through the breaking of bread, he showed himself to them and they recognized who he was. And suddenly, what they'd been shown in the word became flesh in front of them. And they were excited. Their hearts burned. They got up from their seats and went back to Jerusalem. They had fresh vision. They had fresh passion. They were renewed and stirred again. Because they read him in the book and then met him and seen him with their eyes. They encountered him. And when we do that, that will build our faith. That will strengthen our walk with him. That will encourage us. And that will stir us again to fresh things. So they found their hearts were burning. Sometimes, you know, our circumstances can act like fire retardancy. I work in the furniture trade. And we have fire retardant labels on our furniture to say that it, it, certain things will not burn uh, quickly or give off toxic fumes. So they're, they're, each one has to have a label by law to say that. You know, we can allow our circumstances, our disappointments, the frustrations of the years to become fire retardant around our passion and around the vision that Jesus has given us. Can we do that? We do that, don't we? <coughs> but he wants to remove that from us today by showing us himself in his word. He identified with us so that we could identify with him. Let's be blazing hot, not cold. Let us be stirred, not passive. Let us walk through the word with the author of the book. And let him reveal to us himself in it. It is not here for me to be able to preach from it on a Sunday morning and feel good about it. It is not there for theological exegesis or study only. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That isn't just the last book of the Bible. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's purpose and plan for fallen man. For all eternity is revealed in this book. So their hearts burned within them. They had their vision restored. They got up from where they were and they went back to Jerusalem. They said, we've seen him. We've met with him. We understand now that he is alive. Our lives have changed and turned around. And they went back with confidence renewed. They were ready to give a clear testimony in the heart of enemy territory. They went back to the very heart of where... People hated Jesus and so much they wanted to cruci they crucified him and uh, destroyed him as they thought. But they met with the living one. And the power of his word and the revelation of his presence changed them, completely changed them. It liberates them. He met them there. So that's the, that's the word of God. Second part of the, of the covenant is this. I will be their God. And they will be my people. We are promised his presence. Now let me ask you, are you random or are you ransomed? Random 
There's a word used very often these days, isn't it? Oh, that, my youngest daughter particularly likes to say things are random. It's a very culturally colloquial statement to make, um, I understand, these days. I'm a different generation, so uh, I tend not to use the word only in the context that it's supposed to be spoken, uh, rather than things just being random. But we can consider ourselves random. We're not, we're not just being picked out from here and there. He has ransomed us. I will be your God. Specific, deliberate. He has said, I will ransom you. Are we cloned or are we owned? You know, have we been reproduced off some spiritual sausage-making machine? Or are we specifically owned by the living God? Which are we? Ransomed and owned is what God wants us to be. He identified with us so that we can identify with him. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is a story told in 1 Samuel 17, we know it all so very well, of David and Goliath. And there are two statements made in that story which will reveal where our allegiance lies, where we stand with the presence of God. First of all, Goliath stands on the side of the hill. Let me read what he says. The armies are drawn up against each other, one on one back side of the hill and one on the other. And there are, there's a valley in between them. 1 Kings 17, 1 Samuel 17, sorry. 1 Samuel 17. So there's this valley between these two armies. And every morning, the armies would come out and face each other across the valley. And they would make their war cries and they would polish up their armor and they'd stand there with their weapons and they would face one another looking as though they were about to go into battle. And suddenly the Philistine giant Goliath would come out and he would stand before the people of Israel to say, send someone to fight me. And the Israelites suddenly would say, oh, it's Goliath, quick, back to the barracks, boys. And they would not go anywhere near him. They were stymied. They were kept in a, in a prison of fear of not defeating the enemy that stood before them because they listened to Goliath. They listened to what he said. And this is what Goliath said. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Well, they weren't. They weren't the servants of Saul. They were the people of God. God has said about this people, I will be their God. And they will be my people. But they listened to the lie of Goliath when he said, you are the servants of Saul. He brought them down to his level. And we need to have our eyes lifted up, even when the battle is hottest, even when the enemy seems fiercest. We need to have our eyes lifted up and not believe the lie that the enemy makes uh, about us, that we're just nobodies, we're just ordinary uh, Joe blocks, and we have no uh, power and effectiveness in our society. We are the people of God. Are you? Yes. You're the people of God. But there are three things there, and this is, I wish I had more time to, to uh, open this up. But three A's. First of all, if we believe that enemies lie about ourselves, we have caused an affront to God himself. Because we're chosen to represent him on the earth. 
And if we believe that we have no effectiveness and no power to do that, not only are we believing a lie, we're actually denying the truth. So it's deeper than that. It's more in, it has more impact upon us than that. Then Goliath was saying, you're just ordinary. Your God can't be trusted. He's not with you. You're the servants of Saul. Now we are the servants of the living God. We belong to a church. We honour our leaders. We submit to our leaders. But our allegiance is to the living God. He is the one who has called us. He is the one who has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. The second A is, is that, that allegiance. So it's an affront to God. Uh, it questions our allegiance. Are we called an ally to earth or to heaven? Are we living by the principles of the world and Goliath's statements? Or are we living by the principles of heaven and the passion and the power of our God? Secondly, thirdly, it brought or keeps us from action. All the time they believed the, the, the cry of Goliath, they were pinned down. But when we believe that we are the people of God, it makes us pioneers. It enables us to take ground. It establishes his kingdom on the earth. So let's be those that belong, who believe they belong to the, the one who called them. We are pioneers. We are the forerunners. We are the ones blazing a trail for God. If we're not, who is? We are the ones that God has called. Secondly, or second point, this section. Maybe to make that clear. God is not ashamed of us. He has said, I will be your God. And you will be my people. Hebrews 2.11. If you're following this in your Bibles. Hebrews 2 and verse 11. For the one who makes men holy. And those who are made holy. Are of the same family. The one who makes men holy. Jesus. And those who are made holy. His church. His people. You and me. Are of the same family. So... Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not hiding his face this morning thinking, oh no, it's them. <laughs> Here we go again, same problem, same issue. Oh, I wish they weren't part of my family. Oh, I have to identify with them now. He's not ashamed of you and me. <coughs> he died for you and me. He took our shame on the cross. He's paid the price for it. He has set us free to live for him. And yes, we make mistakes. And yes, we get it wrong. And yes, we fail him. But he forgives and he restores and he continues to own us. And he puts us on our feet and he says, go again for me, my son, my daughter. Go again for me. I am with you. I am for you. I will not abandon you. Elijah thought he failed miserably. You know the story of Elijah? Incredible victory. He had uh, hundreds of prophets put to death, false prophets. He had them, he, he revealed the, the falseness of their teaching and the, and the emptiness of their claims. And, and they were just removed from the, the life of Israel. And suddenly there was a cleansing in the nation. 
as these, these prophets were, were physically removed from the nation. And suddenly he hears that Jezebel, the queen, is out for him. There's a price on his life. There are hitmen out there wanting to take Elijah out because Jezebel has uh, said, I will see that he's sorted out, I'll see that he's dead um, uh, in, in a very short space of time. And Elijah, having won this amazing victory, suddenly runs. He runs for his life. And first of all, God prepares food for him at the brook Cherith. Then he goes off into the wilderness and he goes to the mountain of Horeb. And there he hides himself in a cave and he wraps himself up in his cloak and it says that God came to him. First of all, there was earthquake, then wind, then fire, but God was not in any of those. Then it says that there came a still, small voice. Now here's Elijah, dejected, feeling a failure, feeling there's nothing he can do now. He might as well die. The end of, the end of his mission and his life has come because he's run away from a, the threat that was given uh, over his life. And God comes to him. And what does God say to him? You're a failure, Elijah. You're a miserable failure. I don't know why I bothered with you in the first place. No, he doesn't. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing in this place? Here is not where I want you to be. There is where I want you to be. I want you to be out there. I want you to go and anoint kings. I want you to go and raise up prophets. There is still work for you to do. I have commissioned you. And until I take you to be with me, you still have work to do. There is still a commission for you to fulfill. And if we're here this morning feeling dejected, feeling I've failed God this week, how can he ever trust me to serve him again? I've, I've lost sight of what he's called me to do. Then God is going to come and say, what are you doing here? Take your stand. I am your God. You are my man. You are my woman. In your workplace, in your home, you are my man. You are my woman. I want you there. I have things for you to do. I have not finished with you. You have not finished and completed the work that I have set about for you to, 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 uh, to do. You're feeling dejected this morning? Feeling downcast, despairing, wondering? God will say, what are you doing here? Up and about the things I've called you to do. Don't believe that it's all finished. Don't believe that there is nothing left for you to do. God said that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Were they perfect citizens? Were they perfect role models? Were they men that you think, ah, I'd like to be like that? Some of them lied. Some of them deceived. Deliberately, intentionally. But they were God's men and women. And God said that, that, that of them that he was not ashamed of them. We read that in verse in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. I'll just read the end of that. Therefore God, this is, so some of the, some of the uh, men and women of faith are recorded at the beginning of the chapter. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Why? Because the, the saving grace for these men and women was they were going after God. They failed him, they disappointed him, they let him down, but they were going after God. And God said, that's the sort of people I want. Yes, we will stumble and fall. Nobody lives a perfect life, but we're made perfect in Christ. 
And he wants to keep on using us. He wants to keep on sending us out into the world that doesn't believe in him. Into a world that uh, needs to hear more about his love and his compassion.
committee that he already is. And he's looking for a response that is passionate and committed so that we might know him as he is. There is a vastness of knowledge and knowing of God that we have yet to plant. I am increasingly disturbed as I grow older and older about how little I really know of this great and amazing God. And I've walked with him for over 40 years now. And I think there's so much more for me to discover. So much more for me to stand and look and wonder at. No wonder we need eternity to stand and gaze and to appreciate his presence. He wants the deepest, most meaningful, most intimate, most unbreakable relationship that we can ever have with him. He wants us to know him, to walk with him, to talk with him in ever-increasing intimacy. When Adam and Eve were formed, when Adam was formed out of the dust, one of the purposes that he was formed was that he might have intimacy with God. God came and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. What must that have been like? What must that have been like? They heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden. They knew it was God coming when they'd fallen because it was a sound they'd heard regularly. They were conscious, God is coming. God is coming. He was after them. He was after their presence. He wanted to spend time with them. He was looking for their company. God was doing this. And he feels the same way about you and me. Do you believe that? God is passionate about you. Beyond your dreams, he's passionate about you. You know, I really believe there are times when we have to guard our hearts. But we are so busy being church that we forget how we got here, who it's for, and where we're going. And somehow the fire goes out. And sometimes the passion diminishes. And he wants to reawaken us in that this morning. He wants to stir it again afresh in our hearts this morning. Why are you here? Who is this for? It isn't for me to have an opportunity to come and preach or for Sam to lead worship. Those are good things, I trust. Those are things we need. But it's for him. It's for him. We're here for him. And he has made it possible for us to be here for him. Through the cross, through his son, he has opened up the way. It was not anything casual. It was not a light throwaway thing that God did on the cross. It cost him. It broke his heart. He had to turn away from his only son, precious, beloved. Because the weight of sin upon his son was such that God could not look at him. That was the price he paid so that you and I could stand here this morning and lift our hands and say, God, I love you. I love you. That's who it's for. And where are we going? We're going to his presence. We're hungry for him now. But one day, we're going to be satisfied beyond our wildest imagination. You looking forward to that day? I'm looking forward to that day. I'm really looking forward to that day. Oh yes. To see him face to face. Are you passionate? Passionate.
to you some verses. If you want to know what it means about God's passion for you and the passion we, he's looking for in our own hearts, then you need to go to the Song of Songs. And I want to read some words from the Song of Songs. The Lover and the Beloved. The Beloved is hungry for the presence of the Lover and cannot find her lover. So she asks her friends, will you help me find him? Will you help me look for him? Will you help me seek him out? And her friends say, how is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you charge us so? The beloved replies, my lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is pure as gold. His hair is wavy and black as raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover, this my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And their response is this. Where has your lover gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your lover turn, that we may look for him with you? Such was the passion of the lover's heart, that when she described her lover in all his perfection and in all his flawlessness, it drew the hearts of her friends to say, we want to come and find you with find him with you. Is our passion for Jesus at such a level that people want to know the one that we're in love with? That's why he wants us to be. That's why he draws us in. That's why he reveals himself to us. That's why he excites us with his presence. So that we can draw in. It didn't matter whether they believed her or not. She was just desperate to say, This is what my lover is like. He's flawless. There was a timeless perfection about Jesus. Secondly, she knew him, and without hesitation, she commended him. Thirdly, it didn't matter if they didn't agree, she was not ashamed, and she was ready to give an answer. And fourthly, even though he wasn't there for them to see, her description made him stand out. He is the fairest among 10,000, and when you see him, you will agree. When we see him, we will agree. He is the fairest among 10,000. He is altogether lovely. We're in love, Jesus and I. Jesus and you, you're in love. It's a passionate embrace. It's a passionate love. It's a wonderful love story. We're not on just on speaking terms. It's passionate. It's intimate. Beyond anything we could experience on this earth between humans. He is passionate. He went to the cross to show how passionate. I am my beloved and he is mine. He's rescued me from the pit. He's forgiven me. He's cleansed me. He's made me his because he wants me to walk with him. And I know him. Of course I'm going to be passionate about him. I'm going to miss that quite a lot there. I just want to finish with this. The fourth part of this covenant. So, I will be their God. I will set my word in their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. Everyone will know me. Then God concludes this covenant 
with the most stunning commitment. You may want to look at this. Jeremiah. Go back to Jeremiah 31. the barrier that stands between us and him so that we can enter into all that has gone previously so that we can be his people and he can be our God so that we can know him and know him intimately so that we can have his word written on our hearts he has smashed all that stood between you and me and all that would stop us from entering into that relationship one majestic promise commits God to forgiving and then never bringing up again the things that stood between you and me and it's all because of Jesus. Amen. And it's gone, brothers and sisters. It's gone. There is no barrier between you and I. What can stand against us? What can stand between us? There is nothing. Read Romans 8 again. Neither life nor death or principalities or powers or things to come or things of the past under the earth, up in heaven, over the earth, angels, demons, nothing can separate us from the love of God because Christ has taken it all. Amen. Hallelujah. I remember reading some years ago the testimony of a girl who uh, was part of the Moonies cult some years ago. And uh, she came out of that, found Jesus as Lord and Saviour, was redeemed completely. And part of her testimony was this. Only Jesus deals with the bad stuff. Only Jesus deals with the bad stuff. It's not religion or religiosity, church attendance, singing songs. Jesus deals with the bad stuff. And once he's dealt with the bad stuff, the way to the throne of God is open. Completely, always, for eternity. The way is open. This morning, the way is open. And if you failed him this week, if you feel you disappointed him, if you've sinned and feel that regret in your heart this morning, the way is open. Christ has paid for that on the cross. He's bought you with a price. He has forgiven your sin. And he's committed himself never to remind you or himself about it ever again. We went to uh, a foreign land this time last year. I won't tell you where for discretion purposes, but we stayed with a couple, an elderly couple, for two or three days, and uh, the guy there said to me one day, he said, I know something God doesn't know. I still remember my sins, but he doesn't. <laughs> you see, when we've preached our last sermon, when we've finished witnessing, when we've prayed our hearts out and prophesied, when everything is stripped away, when all our responsibilities are gone, when this life is over, when family and church and employment no longer exist, this remains, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. And God is not going to remind us. If you are reminded of your sins of the past, it is not God who is whispering in your ear, so you know what to do. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
We have stood with sorrow. We have knelt at the cross so we can stand at the throne. And that remains forever. This is the covenant. His covenant. Let's enter fully into all that he has provided. His word in our hearts. The promise that he will be our God and we will be his people in every circumstance. That we will know him. There's an intimacy and a passion in our relationship and that he will forgive us and remember our sins no more. That is staggering. What a covenant. He has sealed it in the blood of Jesus. He has recorded it for us to read. He wants to write it on our hearts. He wants us to live by it and to rejoice in him every day. God bless you.